Pop legend Midgeur joins us on the How To Be 60 podcast this week, ahead of a landmark gig at the Royal Albert Hall. But that's not how his legacy will be judged. My take on all of this is, I've got four daughters. When I'm gone, if those daughters can look back and listen to what I've done over the years and say, that was the best he could have done at that moment in time, I win. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Hello and welcome to another look at life beyond the big six hole with me, Kay Adams, and the monominous Mackenzie. <laughs> I like that. Do you like that? Yeah, I do like I like Mackenzie. Yeah, but yeah. you get the mononymous. I like Madonna. Yeah, that's right. Only she's not performing and I am. Well, <laughs> well that's a bit of a leap if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> I but you could say that in an insulting way. Oh, she's performing again. A bit like you performing. You know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just that you're acting up, basically. <laughs> But listen, let me make it clear from the start, you mean nothing to me. Oh, get what you've done there. That's so annoying. You've been so quick today. Usually you're really five beats too slow. (laughs) I know, you just want to blurt it out in tune. Have you had your coffee? It's okay. No, I've never had any breakfast today at all. Mm -hmm. I'm starving. I I was supposed to have it on the way over here and actually I didn't. So if my stomach starts rumbling. Yeah, nice, nice. Just shut up. And and see, sorry, what did you just say? They're nice. No, I said, did you, so what was it? It was Vienna, obviously. Vienna, yeah. yeah. You mean nothing to me. Sorry, no, no, no. And oh. I can't sing, so I'm not even. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, because Midgeer from, well, yes. Folks, but various other bands yes. also is, is our guest today, which I'm really excited about. The boy from Canvas Lang. Indeed. I know, Indeed. which will probably mean more to us as Scots as it will to anybody else, but never mind. We all know. We all know. Actually, I was thinking a better song for you, actually, would be from Midgeer's Visage Days, Fade to Grey. Starts now. And you? Cold, cold heart. <laughs> well, you've been doing your homework. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, there was another one that I thought of now. What was You've it? been sitting Googling for some <laughs> mean lyrics, lyrics for Kay, which is exactly what I did for you. So I deserve everything that I get. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Do you remember ages ago when I saw this woman on the train, like an older woman, and she had on really jazzy shoes? Oh, my God, yes. And I said, like, older women wear jazzy shoes because nobody's looking at their tits anymore. I vaguely, vaguely remember. It's not, it's not often that I kind of really listen to you, but I do actually remember you saying right, that. Okay, okay. Not that they're going to miss yours these days now that you've got pendulous breasts. But anyway, let's just we'll move just on. Let's go with it 30E. <laughs> yes, let's go with your 30E. But anyway, developing my theme on this of avoiding the fade to grey, right? Okay. So I was on my travels recently. So, you know, I was in America mm-hmm. and I saw this woman, you know, in security queues, you get ages to look at people in security queues. Love it. Just standing yeah. there for hours. And yeah. hours. So this woman, I thought, oh, you are a type. So she was probably about my age, maybe a bit older. I have to say, I think I was doing better. But I mean, she was like a classic magazine editor. She was like right. super thin, too thin for her age, to be right. perfectly honest. I'm being right. judgmental. Right. I do apologize. You totally are. Totally uh, are. Yoga pants. Oh, right. Yoga pants. Um, she had a T-shirt on that had grateful, grateful, grateful you know, the sort of thing, which was quite funny because the look on her face, it should have read fucking furious because she was really pissed off. Security. She took four laptops out of her bag and they were clearly going to get taken away. And they did. And she was raging. Who her has four face, laptops, but yes. Her God. face would have turned milk. You know that look? Yes. And she's standing in the yoga pants and grateful, grateful, grateful. 
and the but the finishing the the sort of was it the was it final grace the key decoration and um, whatever that word yes. the cherry on the top yes was that she had on and I am going to call them stroppy glasses oh were they black rimmed yes. Do you know when women get to a certain age and they're looking like that, they've got the grey hair, they've got the bob, they've got the yoga pants, Statement. they've got the T-shirt and all the rest of it. But... Nanomuscurite. So that they can still be relevant to the world, they put on oversized, brightly coloured or black glasses. Like oh. Nadia's got them. Nadia Sawala's oh, got them. she? Denise Welsh has got them. Aye, what's her Trudy face in the, in the... Truly, that's what I was going to say. It's a yes. nice stroppy glasses for Aye. older women to say that I'm still here, don't you ignore me. I think the black ones are the stroppy ones. I bought you a pair, look. I got them off Amazon for three ninety nine. They're not quite as stroppy. Hang on, I can put my finger right. <laughs> they don't have any glass in them. <laughs> what did you buy them for? Well, see, your glasses are like librarians' glasses, aren't they? No. Yes, they are. Oh, my God, you've cut a fucking cheek. <laughs> you, you cut about with those horrible pink-framed ones that were nasty plastic oh, with a glitter. Oh, so what was that done. about then? What was that about then? Those horrible pink ones that used to take into work. You've mistaken me for somebody else. I have not. I remember them. And I thought, funny that, Kay, because you're, I wouldn't say classy, but you've got a certain sort of, um, je ne sais quoi about you. And then... Piling out the French today. Tack <laughs> that sat on the desk that you kept losing. Where would you go with that manky oh, hang on. Wait you a remember minute. them? I remember. I, no, no, no. Are you right? You're right. They're absolutely horrible. What I was going to say, but is... I got them at a Spanish market for ten euros because I lost. Oh them my god, ones. they hang around, and I left them forever. in the office just in case I needed. And you're right. You're right. You're right. Goodness, I'm glad to see that the water bottle's gone. However, there's a teapot here that is just gross. You've taken up your cup. Okay, it's disgusting. Tea, you know where tea stains the inside of cups. It's a bloody teacup. It's stained. Oh, Right. <laughs> it's stained all right. And when you pour it out the lid, it's just like that is that disgusting. It's called patina. Oh, is it? That's yes. in my place in air, I think. <laughs> oh, no, it's patina. Well, it's patina then. I, I just can't go on. <laughs> patina is, you know, over time that the objects like that no, it develop just a damp and sterilized. Oh. And, you know. <laughs> It's gross. okay, it's dark. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, there's your glasses. So there you go. You've got your stroppy glasses. I don't think you need stroppy glasses, actually. Funny, the other thing when I was in America, you know, can I just say Midjur will recognize stroppy women? He will have met women with stroppy glasses in his life. He'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you don't need stroppy glasses. Yeah. I was going to say, I met the American version of you. I was in a Starbucks at Orlando Airport. And I thought, that is Karen. Why? We went to this breakfast shop. Well, you know what? In an airport. And, you know, they had acai bowls and, you know. They had what? Acai bowls. Right. No, you know, you like right. fancy breakfast. Oh, you right, right, like. right. Um, and, like, you could have it with, you could have farro or you could have quinoa. Oh, you know. God, that fancy. That sounds Yeah, it was all class. that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, mm. it's all just switched up porridge, isn't it? But there you go. Yeah. And I said to the lady, um, Oh, do you do you have any acai? Because I couldn't see it. She went. She looked at me. God, she gave me a look that blame her turned me to stone, like like you do. And she, I I rolling back in her head. I thought she was having a stroke. Anyway, she walks through to the back of the kitchen and she opens the door and she shouts at the top of her voice, "Do we have any more of that purple shit?" 
<laughs> God. At least you knew what it was. <laughs> Mitchell know what it is. He's a man of the world. What he absolutely is. He'll know stroppy women with those funny glasses and he'll know what you, I guarantee you'll know what an acide bowl is. An acide bowl. He was on MasterChef. He was a finalist. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, so now you're impressed. Oh, I am. Suddenly. Right. No, not so. He was a co founder of Band Aid. He's had more hit singles than you've that had was... hot porridge. And now you're impressed because he was on MasterChef. Uh, what? No, no, no. I was impressed when I when I read about the Band Aid thing because I didn't know that. And I thought, God, that's something to. Uh, that is impressive. He will it? be thrilled to have your validation. I, I know he will. <laughs> it will mean a lot. Yes, somebody from Ruthie Marcus, I'm sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, a bit of advice before mm-hmm. we speak to Midge. If you've got people coming to stay, because you're good at domestic things, I know you are. Never happy. They made a duster in my hand. Is that what you're saying? Uh huh. No, but like, I haven't invited them. They've just asked if they can stay because they need a bed in Glasgow. Right. Right. Okay. They're not here just now, are they? Yes. Oh, good. Shh. Are you supposed to cook them dinner? Fuck's sakes, yes. Christ almighty, they've come I to stay. I haven't invited them. They just asked if they could stay. Oh, right. Do I have to cook them dinner? How long are they staying for? Two nights. Do you like them? Ah, oh, they're nice enough. Nice enough. Nice enough. Do I have to? I think probably, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Are they young? No. Oh, in that case. Well, they're about your age. You probably do have to cook for them. Oh. Uh, maybe not three course, but certainly two course. Do you think? Yeah. Marks and Spencers? No. Jesus, you can't go out and make something trotting down to Waitrose or Marks. No, you need to absolutely cook something from scratch. Yeah. It'll either be hellish and they won't come back. Chances <laughs> <laughs> it will be. <laughs> now, now you're thinking, I like this. I like this. Anyway, we can ask Midge for some advice. He'll tell us what to cook with. It'll be absolutely fine. Right, email of the week, and then we're on to Midge. He's, oh, he's still there. It's an amazing thing. Right. Well, I, I actually asked his family to lock the door so he wasn't able to leave. Um, so, email, email of, of the week. The week. Okay. So this is from Anne, who says, Hi, Kay and Karen, where do I begin to thank you for the endless laughs and wonderful views on being 60-ish on your podcast? So oh, see me. Um, nice. Uh, I am 63, and after listening to you and your lovely guest stories, I have decided to take the bull by the horns and call it a day to my working life at the end of next month. We're starting a movement. Love it. We are flaming. Love it. Mass retirement. I also recently found out that we're going to be grandparents in November, so this will be a biggie for me and uh, my husband. More importantly, I went shopping today and I bought myself a bikini for my upcoming holiday. I'm liking this. This is something I would never have entertained since my 30s, but your podcast has changed my attitude to that and loads of other things. I now have the attitude, and I quote from Anne, I don't give a flying fuck what I look like or what anyone else thinks. Isn't that brilliant? Well, Thank you, ladies. Keep Anne. up good work. Isn't that great? She says, I feel you're both my new best buddies. Oh, I can be your new best friend. Case fickle. One minute she's your best friend and then the next minute you're... Nah. You're a bitch. Stick with me, Anne. Stick with me. <laughs> Let's speak to Midge after this. Do I have to cook dinner for these people, Midge? No. No. Seriously? No, they asked to if you do, just, just stick on some stovies or something. That's it, you know, something that they can just help themselves to. What for veggie? <laughs> Medjur, when is the last time you made stovies? Come on, be I've honest. Never made stove. I don't know how you start. <laughs> you start with some potatoes, I suppose. But I've never yeah. done it. 
I used to love stovies. Do you? Corned beef stovies before I went veggie. No, that's hash, is it not? Is it? Oh, I, I don't know. Same thing, hash. really. It's it's all same just thing. I mean, it's mince and potatoes, it's stovies, it's corned beef hash, it's just kind of mush, isn't it? It was really speedy. It was what we were brought up on. Mm. So you're, well, you're 70 this year, aren't you? Because you've got a big concert at the, the Royal Albert Hall to to mark that, which um, will be an incredible Stunning. occasion. Is it just coincidence that it's your 70th birthday or did you want to really mark it? Um, well, my, my lovely agent um, last year pointed out that I had a significant birthday coming up <laughs> and did I want to do something on it? And I said, not really. But if we are going to do something, we either do it big or we don't do it at all. And then literally a month ago, uh, we got the message saying that there's a date come up just before your birthday uh, at the Albert Hall. And um, and we got it. So, yeah, so all of a sudden I've now, you know, I've now got all this speculation about what I'm going to be doing at the, the Albert Hall. And right now, as I speak to you, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing at the Albert Hall. That Seriously? Seen an orchestra and ultravox are getting back together and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. I think, okay, the speculation's fine, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when I'm ready. <laughs> so you really don't know what you're going to do at this concert? No. Uh, no, I mean, I think as long as I, whatever I do, as long as I do it well, I'd be, I'd be mortified if people thought my voice wasn't there or, you know, I, I, I was staggering about the stage like, you know, I, I needed help. Uh, you know, and it it doesn't feel that way. I mean, I've just finished a, uh, you know, a, a thirty day tour of the UK, and I'm now in the middle of doing the festivals during the festival season and stuff, and it seems to be going incredibly well. So as, as long as I think it's okay, and I don't read horrendous reviews saying give up now, hang up your guitar, go away, you know, while you still got some dignity left, I'll I'll carry on doing it. That's what I've done all my life. So, well, to get to the nitty gritty, when you said. 70 and then you did that pause does it stick in your throat a wee bit it does uh, because i think there's a um there's an image that we were all brought up with in fact what you looked like when you were 30 you know let alone 70 70 was ancient i mean yes neolithic it's just ludicrous (laughs) but but you've got to remember you know we were kids uh, you know, our grandparents were probably in their fifties, and they looked ancient then. They yeah. don't look like we do. They don't dress like we do. We've we've made things for the younger generations much more difficult because we end up buying the same clothes, and <laughs> we listen to the same music, and we, you know, we we have we have commandeered their youth uh, like vampires. We we've have it up. It's true. Uh, whereas our parents were their own generation. They listened to the Frank Sinatra's and their, and their whatever. And then we had the, the pop explosion. We had the, the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Small Faces and all of that stuff. So we had our own thing, our own set dress sense. And, and we've not given that up. We grow old, but we just don't grow up very well. You know, yeah. we're, still, we're still, like you were saying earlier about, you know, You'd like to be twenty-eight again. I think there's an es- an element of that with everybody. There's still something in there because inside we feel twenty-eight or yeah. younger, you know. But it's the extremities that start kind of giving all away. Giving up, and yeah. What age yeah. would you go to then? I want to be like Sir George Martin. I want to carry on doing what I do um, until I choose not to do it anymore. There's a great story that a record company executive told me about. South American artist who had been huge, I mean huge, in South America for years and years and years. And his career was starting to wane. And he went to see his friend who was the head of the record company. And he had been 
friends for 30, 40 years. And uh, he asked what was happening to his career. And the record company guy cut an orange in half and squeezed all the juice out of it and gave him the husk that was left. He said, oh. that's you. Oh, and, that was, and you think, okay, that's, that's, that's how brutal it can be. Yeah, but there's such an interesting thing there, isn't there? Because there's professional judgment. And, I mean, you as a professional musician, very successful professional musician, might look at somebody or even yourself in a professional sense and think, do you know what? You've had a wonderful career. You've achieved great things. But probably now is the time for you to either stop or step back or whatever. That's the professional judgment. But then there's you as a person. You know, that guy that you say, when he's seen an orange being squeezed out in front of him, his professional head might be able to say, well, yep, that's probably right. But that's you. From a personal point of view, that's a lot more difficult, surely. Yeah, of course. I think we've all had a moment where you know, we've seen a documentary on television and, and someone has a dreadful illness and you think, oh, God, if that ever happens to me, you know, send me to Holland, you know, mm -hmm. put me down. I don't want that until you're in that position. And then you think, hold on, just retract that statement. You know, I'm not ready to go yet. So there's an element of inherently knowing when it's time to, to call it quits. Yeah. Uh -huh. But does that create a little anxiety in, in not just particularly in you, but obviously being in the position that you are, you mentioned earlier on that you don't want to be missing the signals. You you don't want to think that you would be going out on stage and that there would be people thinking, mm, well, maybe not. I think there's enough people around me who would tell me. Uh, they'd say to you, you know, it's it's not good. You know, the the the, the concerts would stop. The offers of doing festivals would stop. It would just grind to halt because nobody wants mm -hmm. something happening. You know, the promoters don't want something happening where half the audience are asking for their money back. And it does happen. You know, people walk, people talk with their feet. Um, so I think that there'd be enough signals, enough signs around. You know, my daughters would probably go, Dad, give it up. You know, come on. It's, just put Do you your feet up. Do you think they would? Do you think they would? I think they would. Yes. Yeah, I think they would. But see, that depends on whether or not you are the kind of person who will listen. Because... You know, particularly when you've been as successful as you, I'm sure you will be surrounded by a lot of people who want to please you. And, you know, sometimes we hear what we want to hear and we filter out what we don't want to hear. And, you know, some people will just carry on regardless of the signals. I mean, how do you manage that? Well, I think you're trying to tell me something here, Chris. I'm not. I'm doing that as well. No, I'm, I'm not. Honestly, I'm, I'm really not. No, 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 no. You know what? I think that, yes, of course, a lot of people in the music industry are surrounded by yes people who will never tell you the truth. They will never say anything. Fortunately, I'm not. You know, I, I've been my own person for a long time. Um, when people ask about the career, I just say, I'm a, I'm a working musician. And sometimes that takes you into the stratosphere of, you know, fame and, you know, all the heady elements that go along with it. And sometimes it's the, you know, it's not the peak, it's the trough. Sometimes you're standing in front of 200 people in a, in a, small theatre with your acoustic guitar. And uh, and you have to be able to ride that out. You know, I I learned very early on. I mean, you know, go back to 1976, Slick had a number one record. And then the next record hardly bothered the charts. Mm. And we were gone. So that that kind of heady, wow, this is amazing. All of a sudden everyone's talking about it and everyone knows us and 
and you know, photo sessions and flying up and down from Glasgow to London, and you know, da, 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 da. and then the carpet's pulled away from under your feet, and you're left destitute. You're left sitting, going, "Well, what next?" And I think at at that point, a lot of people pack up the guitar and and head for home and just don't don't go there again. And I just didn't feel as though I did my my fifteen minutes of fame. So I went out and I got lots of people's 15 minutes of fame. I seem to have just gone, whether it's a dogged determination or what, um, but I've been fortunate enough to, to do all of this. So you have to be able to take the highs and the lows. So I just didn't surround myself with people who would surround me, uh, cover me with platitudes. Was that a conscious decision of yours to try and keep your feet on the ground, to try and stay level-headed? I mean, was that the way that you were brought up? I was brought up that way, yes. Uh, you know, my parents, uh, you know, taught me good from bad and right from wrong, and that's that's about the best you can do for your kids. The rest of it is icing on the cake, and I was brought up that way. But success is a weird thing. Commercial success is it brings good and bad, and uh, and sometimes the good stuff you make it bad. You know, money. Uh, all of a sudden, you can, you know, you can afford things. You can spend. You can be excessive. You know, with me, I ended up getting myself in trouble with alcohol and went down that route. Nobody around me at the time would say, you should watch that. That's, you know, And then you end up crossing all the barriers that you vow you would never cross, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. Once you, once you pull yourself out of that and the highest of the peaks in your musical career, you think, has gone, you soon find humility. You soon find your feet back on the ground. And so the early days for you, presumably you moved down to London as quite a young man to, to sort of pursue your music career. So what was the ambition at that stage? I mean, did you want fame? I mean, did you think, right, I want to be name and light? No, I wanted my opportunity um, to, to play music. Slick for the success it had, had very little to do with anything that I gave it. Uh, you know, we turned up in London to make a first record and with a, a truck full of equipment, we'd driven down uh, to go and make a record in South Moulton Street in London. And as I walked in, I could hear the strains of what I thought was a Bay City Rollers B-side uh, <laughs> coming out of the studio. And that was our track. They'd had the session guys in that morning because that's how they did things. Uh, irrespective. Right. So you weren't treated as a musician. You were a commodity. You were a pretty face. You were the next thing. And they would market you and sell you as that. So even when it got to number one, when, when Slicks forever and ever got to number one, and I got the phone call from them, tell me it was number one. <laughs> Literally, as you said earlier, it meant nothing to me. It just <laughs> didn't, it didn't have that kick. It wasn't mine. I didn't produce it. I didn't write it. I, did, I wasn't allowed to play on it. You know, all of that stuff. So when Slicks' demise was kind of happening, bear in mind 1976, 1977, was the start of the whole new wave explosion. It, 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 all the pop bands were all kind of blown out the water because the new wave bands were all coming in, the punks and stuff. And I was fortunate. It, luck plays a massive part in my career. I was fortunate enough that Glenn Matlock, ex-Sex Pistol, was looking for someone to, you know, to front his band, The Rich Kids. And Glenn had been speaking to a melody maker journalist, Caroline Kuhn, who had seen Slick play and said, you need that guy, there's something about him. So what did you have that was special? Did you know what you had? No idea. 
absolutely no. I don't know if it's tenacity. Um, there's maybe a little a smidgen of talent in there. Hmm. I, 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 the sun shines on me every so often, and and I happen to be in the right place at the right time. You know, I don't think uh, you know Band Aid could have been very different had someone else been standing next to Paul Yates at, at the tube and taking the phone hmm. call. You know, had it been Gary Kemp, he might have been co-writing the record, and who knows what would have happened. Is is that how you got involved in Band-Aid? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was on the tube. I was doing a tube and I Not the subway, like the television program. Sorry, television show, the tube from Newcastle. One of the few live programmes that musicians could do, Friday night, six o'clock in the evening or whatever it was, co-hosted by Jules Holland and Paula Yates. And I knew Paula and I was chatting to her. She was hugely pregnant. And the big old Bakelite phone, a plastic phone, rang. And it was Bob from home. He had mm. just seen Michael Burke's uh, initial footage of the famine in Ethiopia. And he, he said, uh, hand me to Midge. And that was it. We had the conversation. I right. hadn't seen the footage. He said, I want to meet up with you when you get back. We met up, uh, at which point I'd seen the footage. And then we spent two hours trying to think of ridiculous ways of trying to raise some money. Uh, and then finally succumbing to the fact there was rubbish at everything except maybe writing a song. So if we wrote a Christmas song and then got all our friends involved, at, at the royalty rate that we were on at the time, we could raise £100,000. That was it. That was the whole caboodle. That was it. Um, then, uh, luckily, I had just finished building my studio. Uh, I, I sent Bob a cassette of this little da, 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 little thing I did on a toy keyboard. And he said, it's shit, but it sounds like Zed cars, but it'll do. <laughs> and then he came over to mine with a right-handed guitar upside down because he's left-handed. Hardly any strings on it, and started singing, Christmas, ten, be free. And I said, Okay, just leave me. I recorded them on a cassette and leave me with it. And I spent four days playing all the instruments and doing the arrangement for the song while he bludgeoned all our friends <laughs> to come along and, uh, and add their strength and name and fan base, which was incredibly important uh, to it all. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the whole thing just went it's mad because all, all the industry gave yeah. up their percentages you know nobody took any money for it you know? so the sleeve was free the record company didn't take their percentage the retailers didn't take their percentage and all of a sudden this hundred thousand pounds just grew and grew and grew what was the connection in between you and bob because you seem very different characters well we are except bob's geeky with me bob's just big funny geeky bob and when he goes on television, the, the cheeks get sucked in. He's like, and you get the hard Bob, you get the knowledgeable Bob. You get he's very, he's incredibly well educated, really up to scratch mm-hmm. on his whole African thing. He's he's fantastic. He's really good. He's he's brilliant at it. But it's a different Bob. It's like a, it's like a, another face goes on. But with me, he's just big, geeky Bob. So we always kind of got on. He used to come and see the rich kids where we play uh, in Ireland, and uh, and of course we. had... The Irish connection's strong with me with Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy and, and whatever. So we were all kind of friends together. So I, I, it was just an opportune moment. He called when I was standing there uh, and I, I, I knew how to produce records. Originally, he wanted um, he wanted Trevor Horn to produce the record, who was the hottest record producer in the UK. But Trevor notoriously takes three months to make a single. And we didn't have, we had, you know, three or four weeks to get this in the shops. I mean... Uh. Bob probably got the lion's share of the kind of publicity around Band Aid, uh, Live Aid, and which I know is not why I know that's not why he was in it. I mean, absolutely, he was in it for the right reasons. But the media kind of was drawn to Bob, maybe less than you, if you, if you don't mind me saying. 
you strike me just in our short time chatting, you're a very modest guy. Do you think maybe in your business, you should have been more of a gobshite? You should have been more out there, <laughs> more look at me, aren't I great? Possibly, but but that's, that's I, might as, I might as well have been an actor. You know, I, you can only be what you are. And uh, and I, I don't feel comfortable. I've always described Bob and I, you know, and the whole thing that happened back then as, as if we were both at a bar, a crowded bar, waving a fiver. Bob would get served straight away and I'd still be there half an hour later, you know, saying, excuse me, yeah. uh, excuse me. Um, and that's just the way we are. But the the collaboration worked incredibly well. You know, he was the one, you know, lambasting the UN and he was the one giving Thatcher a hard time about, you know, butter mountains and stuff. While I was the one who had the skills in the studio, I could make the record. I could get the empathy. I could make this thing tug at your heartstrings. And that was my skills. And and I, and it's an unseen skill. You know, even today when that record comes on, as you're walking around the supermarket in the end of October, and it's, then it clang, the, the clanging chime of doom starts that track. The hair on my arm still stand up because there's something, mm. something about it. And it's the most bizarre song structure ever. There's no chorus. It's just this thing. It's a wedge. It starts with a, a tiny little intro then ends with this big sing-along feed the world bit at the end it was bizarre to do and it's a one-off and i can't imagine we'd ever write anything together again because we're very different characters did you ever get carried away with your success because modest though you are you've had a phenomenally successful career did you ever turn into a little bit of a wanker oh god yes um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't see it at the time, of course, because you can't, you know, it's just like you're saying about, you know, when do you hang up your guitar? You can't really see it, I don't suppose. I was notorious with my crew, you know, I would I would routine a show, a tour uh, that we were about to do meticulously uh, with the lighting engineer and I knew exactly what I wanted and if they got it wrong, I'd pull them in at the end of the next day, well, what happened? You know, I'd stand here when it, this queue, that should have happened, those lights were still on, that should have gone off. Um, and and that must have been horrendous for them. Those guys work so hard, and I couldn't see it. I thought everyone would be as embroiled in this thing as I was, but it was my thing. You know, it wasn't theirs. They were being paid to do this. They weren't emotionally mm. connected to it the way I was. So I must have been an absolute dick, an absolute nightmare at times. But then, as I say, the success starts to wane a little, you know, when you start refusing to have DJs remix your records and turn them into dance tracks with a with a synth bass that runs through all the chords and clashes musically. It's horrendous. You have to be prepared that that yeah, you'll you'll end up in obscurity. But by doing that, you find your humility again. You know, you find your feet, you find who you were and you revert back to that person. Doesn't mean that you've lost your enthusiasm for what you do. I think you gain an understanding of how to do it. And stamping your foot you know, with a jackboot on sometimes isn't the way to do it. It's the old thing. I remember my school teacher telling me about, there was a fable, a little story about the, the sun and the wind having an argument about who could make a man down on earth take his jacket off. And, uh, and the wind said, well, I can do that. Just blow hard and his jacket will come off. And he kept blowing. Of course, the guy kept pulling his jacket harder and harder and harder. And the sun said, I'll just radiate some heat. And the guy took his jacket off. You know, that's what it is. Sometimes you've got to learn how to deal with people and mm. understand their sensibilities, what they need from it. Because what the crew guys needed from it 
was very different from what I needed from it. And you know what? I don't think the audience would have noticed any difference. So I was giving these poor guys grief for it. And it really didn't make that much difference. So did have you had moments that the phone hasn't rung and it's not been all midge, midge, midge? Oh, absolutely. Uh, many times. And it's, it's good for the soul. Uh, maybe not so good for the bank balance at times. But as I say, you've got to be master of your own career. You know, I could have done the duets. I could have done the, you know, let someone else write the songs. I could have had someone else produce the record. I would have found myself all the way back down the snake and snakes and ladders to slick. Uh, I'd just been a puppet. And I, I, I didn't want to work my entire life, you know, learning whatever skills I have, you know, the studio, the video directing, the all the stuff that I've done over the years, you know, soundtrack composing, all of that stuff. I don't want to do that and then turn around because the the horizon's looking a bit flat. Um and and you know, revert back to to safety. Sometimes you've got to lose the safety net and just go for what you believe is right uh, and go with the flow. My take on all of this is I've got four daughters. When I'm gone if those daughters can look back and listen to what I've done over the years and say, that was the best he could have done at that moment in time, I win. That's the ultimate accolade. Hmm. How did you balance being a highly successful musician with being a dad and, and a husband? You know what? I'm not quite sure. Um, I think there's still an element of selfishness. Um, about being a musician, although I, I had my home studio, so I wasn't traveling the world as much. Uh, you know, I was working from home. Um, I was kind of there when a lot of dads weren't. I was around when, you know, prize givings or sports days or whatever. A lot, and a lot of dads couldn't do because they were, you know, they were in America or whatever, you know, big business. So it kind of swings and roundabouts. Um, but I tried to be there for them as much as I possibly could. Uh, and and still do. Uh, it's a job that never gives up. You, you you don't hand the keys back after a while. You know mm. you have those keys for a long time until you pop your clogs, and you'll always be the parent. You'll always be there. So it's not really a question for me. It's more a question for them. Mm. Do you like being a dad? Yeah, loved it. You know, especially when they're younger and they couldn't really argue back. Now they're all women and <laughs> and, they, and they, they've got me wrapped, not only wrapped around their fingers, but, you know, they can win the arguments most of the time as well. So, um, you know, they're, they're gorgeous. I'm a, I'm a very lucky guy. Mm. You, you said earlier that, you know, you got in trouble with alcohol. What, what was what was that? Uh, Self-indulgence, um, uh, because uh, I could. I, I was petrified of drugs, petrified of them. Um, uh, so I, I never did that. And I remember the first time I was in the Whiskey A Go Go, very happily named Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles with Ultravox. And uh, a waitress came in with a kind of bullet belts with drinks in them and stuff and saying, right, what do you guys want to drink, you know, before the show or after the show? I said, I have no idea. I don't really drink. I've had a few beers and stuff in the past, but... I'd, you know, yeah, like like all kids in Glasgow, I, I remember getting very ill on a double double, a little funny bottle of whiskey, and can never, I can't even get a whiskey to my nose, and that it's just the, the yeah. smell, just the instant, it's instant. And I, I, some one of the bands said, "I'll get a Jack Daniels and Coke," and I got this, and it just tasted like fabulousness. It was great, a little buzz, and ooh, this is great. And then you start doing, as I said earlier, you start crossing all these 
uh, boundaries you vow you would never cross. You only drank on tour, you know. You wouldn't drink before a show, and then you would drink before a show. Mm. And then, uh, you know, you'd be doing that every day. And then I won't drink when I get home when I'm not touring. And then you do. And then I won't drink in my own. And then you do. And then get the gravitates to, oh, well, I won't drink in the morning. And then you, it's too late. You can't see what you're going on because your problem is yours. It's not the family's. It's not anyone else's. I'm not harming anyone until you step back from it and you can see the pebble being dropped in the pool and the ripples going out and disrupting everything. And it was, you know, I went to rehab and, and they didn't know anything either. They were just rubbish. That was my head telling me that. And I came out to drink again and, uh, and it was Kitty when she was a, she was a child. She, she caught me with a bottle and the look in her eyes was horrendous. It was devastating. All of a sudden I wasn't this, you know, knight on a white horse. Mm. You know, I was vulnerable and, uh, and I never drank again. I, I stopped. How old was Kitty then? She was about um, 10 or 11. Old enough to, I think they all knew what was going on. You know, you, you think you'd be very sneaky and very smart about hiding it. You're not, you know. It's, it's, the, it's that thing about everyone thinks that, you know, if you drink vodka, nobody can smell it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think they, they all had a good inkling of what was happening. Did your marriage survive Yeah, it? a very strong wife. She kicked my backside, yeah. Was it a coping mechanism for, for stuff you were struggling to handle? Or, I mean, have you, I take it you've gone back and tried to... Well, I think, I think in rehab they try they talk you through all of that. I'd, I had a perfectly happy childhood. You know, I, I know I was born in a tenement slum, but I didn't know that. <laughs> Everyone I knew was in a tenement slum. Um, I didn't, I wasn't deprived. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't abused. Uh, none of that stuff. I, I kind of got everything that I had on my wish list. You know, it just came hand in hand with the guitar and the success um, and th those feet that were firmly planted on the ground all of a sudden weren't um, and it was damaging not just for me uh, and my health I suppose but for everyone around me it was again that was humbling very difficult thing to do very very difficult thing so much easier just go oh, God, I'll, I'll stop tomorrow so much easier but um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. I mean, God, I'm thinking of um, Lewis Capaldi at the moment because obviously he's going through struggles and, you know, fame is set up, isn't it? Fame and success is set up as the ultimate dream for yeah. for people. And it has, it's not just this generation, but for other generations. But then sometimes you see, like Lewis, and, and you're telling your story, you think maybe that fame, that success, that attention is just too much for the human brain to handle? Uh, quite possibly. I'd seen the documentary that's on Netflix. Mm. And there's a, a horrendous moment in there where he's talking to his Los Angeles record label and he's ticking. You see him twitching. Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Ticking. And the label says, so, Lewis, when's the next album? Because that's all they're interested in. And I found that obscene. It just took me right back there to what, what the industry can be like and if that's the callousness of a lot of people within the industry, um, no wonder it's a place where you seek solace and a bit of hope and a bit of comfort. So what pressures were you under when you started drinking? I don't think I was under any major pressure, although I suppose if you analyse it, you know, um, the band that I 
loved. It had taken me into the, the, the realms of commercial success. Uh, Ultravox were gone. It was finished. It was falling apart. It was, you know, not happening. Um, I got myself involved in Band Aid and Live Aid. I was starting out kind of like starting all over again with a solo career. You know, in your mind, you think, well, a quarter of the Ultravox fans will follow me. Of course they will. It doesn't work that way. You don't have that banner over your head. You don't have Ultravox, just like Mick Jagger didn't have the Rolling Stones. You know, you go on a solo tour and he plays to 2,000 people a night. You go as the Rolling Stones, you're playing to, you know, 800,000 people a night. It's, that's a difference. Uh, so you find yourself at the bottom of the ladder, start to try and climb up slowly and, and find your own feet. It's not we, uh, us, you know, we think, we feel, you know, this is our thing. All of a sudden it's you, it's what you think and what you feel and there is nobody else around you. Uh, so it's quite a, uh, an insular thing. So I suppose if, if I were, you know, if I were lying on a psychiatrist's couch, that's what I'd be maybe digging into right now. Going, maybe it was elements of all of those things. It just gave you, you needed that outlet, whatever that outlet was. Mm. So how did you get out of the alcohol? That was it. That was it. And, and just a finger snap. Absolutely. I mean, all the, wow. You know, all the all the education in the world. You know, all the, the the platitudes and all the you know all the information that the big blue book gives you, went in one ear and out the other, uh, in one eye and gone, um, until something like that happens and you realise you know how damaging it is. I couldn't do it anymore. So I stopped. That's come up for 19 years now. It's interesting that it's your daughter that helped you stop by the look or whatever it was in her face rather than your wife. Because presumably there had been a conversation like your wife's bound to have known that you were drinking and that had kind of come up again and again and it was just... Possibly. Um, I think because there was no anger. You know, I think if my wife had found me, there'd be anger, it would be you know, hurt and... A scene, and with my daughter, it was just this look of disappointment. I can't put it any other way. Mm. It was like a you know your world collapsing, um, and I could see it in her eyes. That is so interesting, isn't it? Because you know, for any of us in life, when we know we're you know when you're doing something wrong, don't you? I mean, you just yeah. know it. Yeah. Um, and then often with a partner, there's recrimination. You have a bit of a Barney, and so you it allows you to become defensive. Mm -hmm. It allows you to to get yourself up and mm -hmm. you know put your guard on again. Mm -hmm. Whereas a child who's just looking at you mm. and yeah. is not making accusations, oh, is not pointing there's no, the there's finger. There's no argument. There's no hiding it. There's no denying the fact. You have nowhere to go. Uh, as I said, it was the look in her face that was that did it. And did that then, I mean, apart from the alcohol and, and, you know, that was the end of that, did that signal a bit of a fundamental shift in the way that you saw life, what was important to you? I mean, was it more than just dropping the alcohol? There was massive doubt uh, because kind of suppose most of what I'd written, you know, Jack Daniels and I had written it. Hmm. Um, and it's a bit like when the Beatles gave up you know, LSD and whatever, and wondered if they'd ever be able to write songs again. And it was that, I thought, well, I, I, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. I'm not sure I'm capable of doing this, of sitting down and writing songs without that kind of fuzzy feel. And I didn't I didn't know whether I was capable of getting out and doing live shows, which I'd always done. I'd always performed live. 
Um, and it felt like, really felt like starting all over again. There was no, no record label. There was no desire to, to record something. Nobody was banging on my door saying, we need a new record next week. It just felt stagnant. You know, I didn't know where it was going from that point. Um, until you get a bit of clarity. As I say, I was fortunate that I had my uh, recording facility, so I didn't have to go cap in hand asking for advances to make music. I just slowly but surely got back into doing it again. And that became my, my, my power, I suppose. You know, being able to do that, be able to exercise ghosts, uh, write about experiences from the heart. It just got back there very slowly. And before you know it, you're six months clean, or a year, or two years, or five years, which you couldn't imagine, you know, five years prior. You couldn't imagine, mm. you know, not having a drink for, for an hour. So what is life now, apart from music, obviously, which is still a huge part of your life? What, what else is in your life? I mean, I hesitate to do the, the H word, but do you have any hobbies, Mitch? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the H word, I love that. Um, uh, my hobby turned into my career. That was, that was music. Yeah. The only thing I do outside of that, and you mentioned it earlier, I used to do a bit of cooking. I quite enjoyed that. Mainly because when I was young, free and single, it would impress girls. I could knock up a spaghetti <laughs> bolognese. But that's something I used to do. I'd spend a day, uh, you know, doing a, a Thai meal or something, a, a Thai banquet for friends. And then after uh, the experience on um, MasterChef, uh, I don't think I ever cooked again. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't go well then. Sports people spend all their fees um, paying chefs to, to teach them a, to a chew brilliant to dish. Because, because that's how they're brought up. You don't go and run a race without, without training. So you know you don't do you don't do your what you're known for without training. So they spend all week making the one dish, then they make that dish. And of course it's spectacular, it's wonderful. Because they are sports people and they have that desire to win. Oh, I kept saying, well, I'll go back to my day job. It's not yeah. a problem. It's like, I'm not. I'm not planning on opening a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a restaurant somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, listen, Mitch. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to speak to. You. Just quickly do our big six o bingo. Yes. So I want you to um, think of a couple of numbers between uh, nothing and sixty. Oh, nothing and sixty. Well, um, uh, seven and fifteen. Best year of your life. Uh, this year, because I still wake up in the morning. That's a fair point. <laughs> What's your greatest pleasure in life? Greatest pleasure in life? Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, it's got to be being with the family. Uh, as they get older, they, they're all off in different directions or whatever. So I think maybe the idea of being with a family, the reality of being with a family always brings something slightly different. <laughs> so the best moment, yeah, the idea of being with a the family. There's a guy who used to go on tour all the time and then he was saying to his friends, uh, he said, oh, I can't wait to get back around it. You know, just before Christmas, we're finishing the tour and I'll sit there with the family and we'll sit by the fire and have a drink. Mm. And then he's, hold on a second, my family don't do that. So the <laughs> fantasy was greater than the reality. Oh. <laughs> I know we all think we're Val Dunican, don't yeah. we? <laughs> Christmas jumper on and rock up down by the fireplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Are you good with female company though? Because four girls and your wife. Mm, I know. Oh, that Easter I, I am. I'm, uh, yeah, I, 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 my, Testosterone has been sucked out of me 
by, <laughs> by my daughters. So yeah, I'm constantly surrounded by females. Even the even the animals are female. So yeah, it's, it doesn't bother me. I'm I'm good with females. Well, listen, Mitch, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck for the the concert. I yeah, mean, when you're touring, you're in lots of festivals. Yeah. You've got lots of stuff on. But I mean, obviously, that's going to be a real landmark gig in a, in a yeah. fantastic venue. Happy birthday when it comes. Well, yes. thank you very much. And keep breathing. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for another week. Keep those emails coming in. Those so what I'm 60 emails. We love them. Podcast at htb60.com. Next week, repair shop favourite Susie Fletcher tells us about life after loss. <laughs>